Good morning. It is a joy to welcome you to First Methodist Mansfield, those who are here in the well and those upstairs in the well cafe. Uh, my name is David. I serve as the senior pastor here, and I especially want to welcome you if you're here for the very first time uh, this weekend. I pray you've been blessed already, and we appreciate the opportunity to bless you uh, in, in worship today. A couple of things I want to lift up. You've already heard about family experience. I hope you'll be here uh, this afternoon, 5 o'clock for that, an opportunity for families to worship together. It's also for you, if, you're, uh, if your kid is a part of G-Force, it's a way for you to kind of preview what they're going to be studying over the next quarter. So great opportunity. We'd love for you to be here for that great, great time. Kids are prepared. They've been practicing to lead us in worship, and it's going to be a great blessing. And I also want to lift up these postcards you just heard Nick uh, talk about, and I want to make sure everyone in our church knows exactly why we're doing this. So I'm guessing that you do the same thing I do when you go get the mail from the mailbox. You bring it in, and you separate the the good from the bad. You know, you, you pull out all the bills, which I guess you would think of as bad, but there are things you have to pay, right? So you kind of make sure you have those, and then you have all the other stuff that fills your mailbox, and a lot of that stuff just ends up in the trash can or, or the recycling bin, and we're doing this, we're providing this for you because we believe the most compelling invitation is a personal invitation, and so we want to invite you to personally invite people in your life to come and celebrate Easter with us. Again, we'll be at the Performing Arts Center uh, here in Mansfield plenty of seats there. That's why we have Easter there, and we'd love for you to invite people uh, to, to be a part of that. Now, one thing I want you to make sure you understand, okay? Nick had a great idea in the video that you, if you go to lunch today or any time over the next couple weeks, uh, go to dinner as a family, you could share one of these with your servers. Make sure if you do that, though, you leave a good tip, okay? <laughs> Don't stiff them on the tip. In fact, if you've got a guy who's big enough wristband or anything that says First Methodist Mansfield, please leave a good tip. That'd be nice, okay? So just, just keep that in mind. But again, we'd love for you to share uh, these, these personal invitations uh, with our community. If you have your Bible, Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be today, eventually in the message. I want to encourage you to find that. If you did not bring your Bible, there's some blue Bibles uh, in the seats in front of you here uh, in the chapel. And then upstairs, we have some blue Bibles available for you as well. We have those here because we want everyone to be engaged in the scripture as we go through this. And one of the things that I've been encouraging you to do all year long, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, I've been talking about you bringing your own Bible to worship. I am so happy to continue to see people doing that, bringing their Bible. People walk in and go, hey, I got it. I brought my Bible today. I love that. Uh, I got an email this week from a dad uh, about that. And here's what he said. He said, I took my Bible to church for the first time this past Sunday. Having my Bible open, he said, I felt more engaged in the message. But here's what I really appreciated. He said, my daughter, who uh, is a second grader, by the way, my daughter also commented when she noticed I was carrying it in. So I think it sets a good example for my kids, too. I just love that. love that note. That's one of the reasons that we do that, to impress upon our children the importance of this book. But I think also, you know, one of the things I was thinking of this week is I take for granted the gift of this book. And just having it with me at all times, um, I, I have like 20 Bibles. I mean, I have a shelf at the office and a shelf at home that's full of Bibles. And, and, and we take that for granted. We, we forget what a great gift that is to have uh, our, our own copy of the Bible. And if you don't, by the way, we'd love to give you one. So stop by the connecting point afterwards. We'd love to bless you uh, with that gift. But I'm going to do something a little different today. We are going to get to Romans chapter 8. When we get to Romans chapter 8, the sermon's almost done. Okay, so you can kind of, oh yeah, you know when the ending's coming, all right? But I'm going to share with you several additional scriptures today. 
you're going to see where to find those on the screen. So you can write those down, uh, and I'd love for you to look those up later. On the back of your bulletin, just write down these scriptures. What I want you to do as we move through the message today is I want you to follow the thread. Okay, We're going to look at several different books. We're going to look at several different authors, but I want, you, I want you to follow the thread through the scriptures, and that's why I want to give you a variety of references today. So again, those will be on the screen, and you can write those down. We're going to begin with John chapter 10, verse 10. Uh, this is Jesus uh, talking about himself as the good shepherd. Jesus is talking about the good shepherd who knows his sheep and loves his sheep and leads his sheep to good pasture. And in that section, Jesus says this, I have come that they may have life, they referring to the sheep, that they may have life and have life to the full. Now, if you're looking at your own Bible, that might be translated as abundant life. But here's the idea that Jesus says. The reason that I have come into this world is to invite people to experience and to embrace an amazing and abundant life life. And doesn't that sound good? Like how many people do you know in your life that if you ask them, hey, what, what's kind of your goal for life? They thought they, they would respond, well, I'm kind of going for average to subpar. You know, that's really what I'm, what I'm looking for. No, I mean, the idea of a full life, a life where we can live with no regrets that at the end of our days, we can say, man, my life mattered. I mean, I think that's the desire that we all have. We all have the desire to, to live a life that has meaning and purpose and, and, and value. And Jesus said, I have come to invite people into that kind of life. I mean, that's good news right there, regardless of what you think about the rest of what Jesus says. That's his purpose. That's his, the idea behind everything that Jesus does is to invite us into a full and abundant life. But listen, Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, listen to what Jesus says about finding that life. He says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And as you think about destruction, I just encourage you to think about it this way. It's the way you don't want to go. It's the life where at the end of your life, you've you got nothing but regrets. It's the life where you, you feel like you're, you're wasting life. It's destruction. Jesus says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And there's a lot of people on that road. A lot of people find that road. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. So marry these two ideas with me. Jesus says, I've come that you have a full life, an abundant life, an amazing life, the life that you yourself desire and, and want to find in your life. But here's what Jesus says about finding that life. He says, the problem is most people are looking for that life on the road that's taking them in the opposite direction. They're on the broad road, the, the, the road that is traveled by many that leads not to abundance in life, but leads to regret. That leads to a life that doesn't have meaning and value and purpose like you would want. He says that that life, that what you're really seeking for is on this small road. And only a few people find that. Now, what is that? That is what we would call a paradox. And we find this throughout the teachings of Jesus. We, we have this logical assumption. You would think, you follow the crowd. They're on the, this road. This is the way to go. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's this, it's this other way. Now, here's what a paradox is. A paradox is a statement or proposition that despite sound reasoning from acceptable premises leads to a conclusion that seems senseless. And here's what I want you to hear. We find those throughout the scriptures. 
particularly in the teachings of Jesus. These things that when you think about it, it doesn't quite make sense. Here's another one, Luke chapter 9, verse 24. Jesus says, this is familiar, you probably know this, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. That doesn't make sense, God bless you. That doesn't make sense. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. That the road to finding abundance and finding life is actually in letting life, letting life go. Here's another one. This is the theme verse for us in this series, John 3.30. John the Baptist says, he must become greater, I must become less. The way to experience more, which, hey, that's a big word in our culture, right? You want more. The way to experience more, according to John, is to embrace less, to empty oneself. This isn't on the screen, but you might write down Philippians chapter 2. I think it's verses 1 through 11. Paul talks about there's this hymn, if you will, a song that celebrates the way that Christ did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead Christ emptied himself and became a servant. He humbled himself, became obedient even unto death. This is the trajectory of the life of Christ. It's a downward movement. It's a paradox. It doesn't quite make sense. Let me show you one more. Uh, how many of know what this thing is here on my neck? It's a, okay, one person raised their hand. I do. <laughs> it was very polite. Thank you for doing that. I know. This is a cross, okay? How many of you, and raise your hands upstairs too, how many of you have a piece of jewelry or something in your house that has a cross on it, Okay. Lots of you do. How many of you have those like bedazzled jeans with cross on your butt? Anybody? I have a couple pair. Yeah. So <laughs> this is a symbol we see all the time, right? I mean, it's, it's very present in our culture. If you're here in the chapel, you can look right up there. You'll see a cross. You, if you walked across our campus, if I were just to ask you, hey, how many crosses do we have on our campus? I promise you couldn't come up with the number. There's so many. You go in our sanctuary, we have these beautiful stained glass windows. They're all, and the, and the image that you see is made by little crosses put together. I mean, there's like a thousand there. I don't know. They're all over the place. And when you think about the cross and what the cross means to us, I mean, it symbolizes something, right? It means something to us. When we see the cross, what do we think of? We think of love. We think of strength. We think of courage. We think of Christ embracing humility. We, we think about our faith. We, we see the cross and Maybe for some of us, it connects us to people of faith who we have loved and who have served us. I mean, it's a meaningful symbol for us. It's, it's something that we cherish. It's why people like me, we wear it on, around our neck all the time to remind us who we are. It's a, it's a great symbol. And we don't often think that this should have been the worst marketing campaign in the history of the world. <laughs> like for the Christian community to embrace this symbol was totally ridiculous because of what this used to symbolize. You see, if you don't know, you may not know this, that the cross was a tool of Rome. And the purpose of the cross was to brutalize, torture, and kill people. You know, that doesn't quite make sense, right? I mean, that was, it was a way that Rome dealt with Rome's adversaries. And here's what you may not know about the cross. If you were going to be killed on a cross, it kind of meant that you were a little bit special, okay? Because not everybody was taken care of in this way by Rome. 
those who were crucified, those who met their end on the cross, were those who were special. They were the ones who had presented themselves as adversaries of Rome. And so the purpose behind this tool was really twofold. It was to brutalize and humiliate the person who was seen as an enemy of Rome. That was the first purpose. But the second purpose was it was meant to serve as a deterrent. It was meant to scare the people. It was meant to remind them, you probably shouldn't mess with Rome. Crucifixions were often done at a major thoroughfare, a a road that you couldn't uh, avoid, and people would pass by and see these individuals who were dying before them in order to remind them, you shouldn't mess with Rome. It was a symbol for Rome of their power and their might and their willingness to violently and brutally present that to their subjects and to remind them, you don't want to mess with Rome. So listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 about this idea of the cross and the way in which Christians embrace this symbol. He says this, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So this symbol to everybody else, are like, what are you doing? Why are you embracing the cross? Why are you reminding people that the person who founded your movement was brutally killed and tortured? Why would you do that? Paul says to the rest of the world, it's totally foolish. But to us who are being saved, this symbolizes the power of God. Rome sought to humiliate Jesus. For us, it is a reminder of his humility. Rome sought to portray him as weak and Rome as strong, but we see in this the strength and power, not only of Jesus' sacrifice, but also of God's love. It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. And you find them over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. This series, this whole six weeks, is about embracing a paradox. It's about embracing, if you were here the first week, this upside-down way of life that doesn't quite make sense. And if you want one word to describe what we're talking about over these six weeks, the word would be humility. We're talking about humility. And when you think about what does it mean to practice humility or why you would even pursue humility, let's just together embrace the idea that it doesn't quite make sense. (laughs) If you think about the logic of the world, it doesn't quite make sense. But here's what I want to do today. I want to give you a couple thoughts on humility so you can think about not only what humility is, but also what it isn't and where this originates. So here's the first thing. Uh, I want to encourage you to write this down. Humility is a distinctively Christian value. That's really important to wrap your head around. It is a distinctively Christian value. If you were here at Christmas, we did a series called A Baby Changes Everything, which is a great song. But we also did the series because we wanted to highlight those things in our world that we just accept as the way the world has always been, and we don't realize that many of those things originated in Jesus. So in the first week, one of the things we talked about was Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. Again, you can look this up later. This is Paul writing. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Uh, if you were here this week, uh, if you were here that week that I talked about that and you hadn't slept since then, you would have remembered that I shared with you what Thomas Cahill uh, wrote, a historian. He, he says that Christ led Paul to thoughts that no one had ever had before. Thoughts about the equality of all human beings before God. In other words, no one had ever said that before. No one had ever thought that before, that in the world as, as it is, of all the people in the world, that every single person is a person of sacred worth, and we are all equal before God. Brand new idea originated in Jesus. And if you were here that week, you may remember me saying that because of that, because that is something that is distinctively Christian, it is something that people of faith should not only treasure about their faith, but should defend. Because that belongs to us. That belongs to Jesus. Humility is the same thing. Humility wasn't the way of the world in the time of Jesus. The, the Roman emperors didn't practice humility. <laughs> Roman emperors, uh, Roman culture was about seeking honor and celebrating yourself. And so emperors would build temples and statues and buildings to themselves just to remind the people, hey, by the way, I'm pretty great. And the people didn't think that was weird because they lived in a culture that sought after honor and saw humility as weakness. But Jesus changed the paradigm. He flipped the tables. He turned the world upside down. And humility is a distinctively Christian value. Matthew 20. 25 through 28, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he says this, you know how the Gentiles act. They lord it over each other. Their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, there's this hierarchy in the world. These are the haves, these are the have-nots. These are the good, these are the bad. Jesus says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life for a ransom for many. That is a value that we hold. It belongs to Jesus. It originates in Jesus. The second thing is this, that humility is about finding our proper place. I want to explain this because this is really important. Humility is not thinking too highly of yourself. Like you probably all know that, right? That's, that's what's stuck in your head. It's not about, I can't think too highly of myself. Well, that's part of humility, but humility is also not thinking too little of oneself either. It's about understanding where you fit in your proper place, in, in, in the hierarchy that is between God as creator, the son who has saved us and who is now Lord of our life, and where we fit into this whole narrative that we find in the Bible. Where's our place in the world? It's not about self-rejection, Okay. So you're not going to find humility by going home and beating yourself up. Some of you do that already so well. Don't do that anymore. That's not what humility is about. It's not about beating yourself up. It's not about a rejection of the self. It's about reimagining yourselves. It's about understanding who you really are in relationship to God and who God says that you are. It's about finding your proper place. You may not experience this like I do on a regular basis. This happens all the time for me. I'll go meet someone new. I'll be in a conversation. I'll walk in a room, whatever it is, and somehow the word gets out, he's a pastor. He's a pastor. I sat down at a uh, table at the Wesley Sunday School class party on Friday night, and these wonderful, sweet ladies there said, we have to behave ourselves because the senior pastor's sitting here. 
all the time. It's like my job in the world is to suck the fun out of the room. Like, just <laughs> stop smiling. Don't have any fun. Don't listen to that music. Don't dance. I mean, people look at me, they're like, man, his kids must hate him. <laughs> because they kind of have this notion of humility as embracing the most boring life imaginable. It's about rejecting yourself and just reminding yourself every single day, I'm a sinner, I'm so bad, it's just terrible. That's not what humility is. That's false humility. Humility is about finding your proper place. And this, this may unpack it for you a little bit more. Humility invites us to understand God's true character and our identity. So now we get to Romans 8. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. If you have your Bible, you might underline that phrase. You are the children, the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves what would a slave do? A slave would be in fear. A slave would always think, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing well. A slave would beat themselves up. Oh, you got to be, huh? no, that's not what it is so that you would live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. We, we reach out to God, not as a distant deity, but as a father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And verse 17 is really, really important. And if we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we might share in his glory. Now, one more scripture I'd encourage you to write down, Luke chapter 15. I'm not going to read you all of Luke 15, but I'll tell you what Luke 15, what's there. There's three stories about lost things being found. So if you're one of those individuals who loses things all the time and finds them, Luke 15 was written for you, okay? So go, go check that out. There's three stories. The first story is a story about a coin being lost that is found. The celebration that ensues because what was lost was found. The second story is a story of a sheep being lost and the sheep being found. That may be out of order. I can't remember which one is first in Luke chapter 15. It doesn't matter. The third story is the story of the lost son. Or the parable, you may have heard it referred to this way, the parable of the prodigal son. There's three characters in this story. There's a father and there's two sons. And these two sons are different. I don't know if you have multiple kids, but sometimes kids turn out different. Have you noticed that? There's an older son, there's a younger son. The older son is the son that stays home. He's the one who follows his, his father's wishes. He's the one who, one who does everything that his father wants him to do. And then there's the younger son who kind of just wants to do what he wants to do. <laughs> He's not really interested in what his father wants him to do. He's not really interested in the life that his father has built. And so what he ends up saying to his father, essentially, is he says, Dad, I figured out that I'd be better off if you were dead. And so since when you die, I'm going to get an inheritance. Could I go ahead and have that now? I would like to have that now so that I could just do what I want to do. And the father gives it to him. And what the scripture says, what Jesus tells us, is that the, the younger son went to a distant country and he squandered his father's wealth. The actual literal translation is he squandered his father's life in wild living. That's, that's the polite way of saying he did some bad things. Okay, He went off and did his own thing, lost everything, found himself just rock bottom. What am I going to do? Don't have food, don't have anything. And he begins to dream, to think, to pray, to hope that maybe, maybe his father would receive him home, not as a son, 
but as a servant in his house because he remembers, you know what, even the servants had food in my father's house. And so he comes up with this elaborate story to explain what had gone wrong. You've done this, right? wasn't my fault. Here's, here's what happened, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Comes up with a story, and, and he comes home to, to meet his father again. And, and what he doesn't know that we know by the way that Jesus tells the story is that the father had been waiting for him. That the father had, in fact, been on the front porch every single day just watching the horizon, hoping that one day he would see his son and his silhouette coming across, coming across that horizon. But day after day after day after day, no one came. No one came. And you can imagine what that father did each and every one of those days. He went back and he prayed. He prayed for his son. He prayed for his safety. He prayed that one day, one day, one day he might come home. Until one day when he was on that porch, he saw him. I'm not even sure he knew it was him at the beginning, but he saw someone coming over. He saw someone on the horizon. And before he even knew, he jumps off the porch, Jesus tells us, and he runs to embrace his son. And of course, his son pulls out his journal, you know, and he's like, okay, here's, here's what happened, dad. You know, this, 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 you know, he's got his whole story laid out, but dad doesn't even want to hear it. <laughs> he doesn't have time, but put that away. And he embraces his son and he, and he welcomes him home. Now, Again, you've heard the story referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. You've heard it referred to as the story of the lost son, which would kind of lead you to believe that the son is really the main character in the story, but he's not. Neither one of the sons are the main characters. By the way, it's a story of two lost sons, not just one, but you have to go check that out for yourself. The main character in the story is the father. The person that Jesus wants us to see in the story to really capture and understand is the father who's on the front porch waiting for his son to come home. The invitation of the parable of the prodigal son, the invitation of the gospel, of the, uh, what Jesus brings in the world is to, for us to see perhaps for the first time who the father really is. And in understanding who the father really is to understand who we really, really are. Okay. I, want you to, I want you to hear this very carefully. True humility can only grow from the place where we experience the real love of the Father. The Father who embraces us as his children. Hear this very carefully. It does not come from the discovery that we are less than we are. Here's another paradox of Jesus' teaching. It comes from the discovery that we are more than we ever thought we were. It comes from the discovery that we are, in fact, children of God. And because we are children of God, because we have been adopted by the Father, and because of the Spirit's work in our life that enables us to call out Abba, Father, to see ourselves as sons and daughters, here's the really good news. You don't have to spend your life building your own kingdom. Why? Romans 8, 17, because you are now an heir of an eternal and unshakable kingdom. That's where true humility comes from, from an understanding of who God is as Father, and because we begin to see God as God really is, we begin to see ourselves as we, we really are, not as less than we thought we were, but actually much more valuable than we ever thought we would ever be. Because we are children 
We are sons. We are daughters. And we are loved by the king. That's where humility comes from. You cannot discover the humility that Christ longs to see in our life without first understanding the goodness and grace of God that enables you to live this upside-down life, to seek after the road that Jesus says is narrow and small and only a few people find it, to, to be able to quiet the noise of the world around you that says more, 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 to embrace the way of Jesus that is a continual, a continual journey of saying less, less, less. He who wants to be great must be a servant. He who wants to be first must be last. The message of the cross, this symbol, it is foolishness to the world, but to us who are being saved, Paul says, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pause this day to first give you thanks for the work of your spirit in our life. The spirit that gives us the confidence and the courage to see ourselves as your children and to cry out from the depth of our need, Abba, Father. To embrace, Lord, that we are your children, we are loved by you, and that the way that leads to life has now been made available to us because of this great gift. So I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in our hearts and work in our lives as we share this journey of allowing you to become more in our lives while we become less. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to follow you as we do each year to the cross, to remember your great sacrifice, to celebrate your great love, and to remember, Lord, the great day of resurrection. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.